What must it have been like to follow Jesus? We talked about crossing that line, being brought in to the inner circle out of thousands of people being called close, called near, called to learn, called to be prepared to be sent out, called his own. What must that have been like? It must have been an incredible thing, right? What an honor. What a privilege. What a surge of significance and powerful purpose. But at the same time, what a, what a wild, unpredictable, <laughs> what a seemingly dangerous ride. Lose your life so that you can find it? Take up your cross and follow? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble. Wow. Wow. I'll never forget taking my oldest daughter to Six Flags Magic Mountain for the first time. I probably took her when, before she was ready. But we had gone on a few rides and had just, we were having a great time. Actually, she was having a great time, and I was actually getting sick to my stomach. I guess I'm getting older. But there was one ride that I just had to go on. It was a ride that came out the year I was born, that old wooden roller coaster known as Colossus, and they remade it, a new version of this roller coaster called now Twisted Colossus. Oh, yeah. We had to go on it. We just had to. And I thought if my six-year-old could handle all of these other rides, well, certainly this one's just going to be a piece of cake for her. I was wrong. <laughs> it, was, uh, it wasn't like the old ride at all. Long gone was that rickety old white wooden roller coaster. This was like being in a dogfight with the Blue Angels. The G-forces were just, they, were, they, they left your, your knuckles white. You're clenching the seat. Your head is all the way back into the seat back. And it was awesome. It was incredible, the best roller coaster that I have been on ever before. But I'll never forget looking over at Quincy and that, that look of terror and betrayal. <laughs> they said, how could you do this to me? And on top of all of that, it was raining and so the rain combined with the speed of that coaster, it felt like a thousand tiny needles like hitting your face. We had our hoodies like tightened up so there was just a tiny little hole that we were looking out of. That was an uncomfortable journey, a totally uncomfortable journey. You know, following Jesus was no pleasure cruise either. It was never meant to be. Following Jesus is an altogether uncomfortable journey. It's a journey that will demand everything so that everything can be gained. It's a journey that would be exhausting, that would be ostracizing, that would be embarrassing, sometimes even frightening. Although there were superior joys and eternal rewards, it would be painful. It would require endurance intentional steps into harm's way, and unwavering trust. That's so important for us to remember. 
so important for us to keep in mind. For a number of years, we've experienced a sort of safe Christianity. It's been relatively safe to be a Christian here in the United States. There was a time when it was even a key ingredient to climbing the corporate ladder or being accepted into a community or or even just you, you become a Christian so that you can just go with the flow so that you could be considered kind of normal. It's not exactly the case in the world we live in here in 2021, is it? In fact, quite the opposite, right? Seems more and more true every day. Claiming Christ, it doesn't win you any points at school, in the classroom. It doesn't win you any points at work. Well, unless you work where I work. Uh, it doesn't win you any points in society. Holding on to those biblical convictions, it doesn't make you popular. It makes you strange. It makes you antiquated out of step, quite possibly regarded as an enemy. But you know, it's not just the the opposition of the world out there that makes following Jesus uncomfortable, is it? It's not just that outside. Sometimes it's Jesus himself that makes following him so difficult. The mission is challenging The journey, uncomfortable. The work is hazardous. We need to remember that. If we don't remember that, then we're going to find ourselves falling prey to frustration or fear or that temptation to flee when we see that our dreams are unmet or our pursuits are unfulfilled or our suburban utopia unattained, our hopes for the good life now just utterly decimated by things like failing health or hardship or heartbreak. Let me show you what I mean as we journey with Jesus' disciples here in Mark chapter 6. And we won't, we won't read through it here at the beginning. We'll just kind of walk through it as we have been uh, dealing with narrative and scripture for the past uh, year or so. After leaving his hometown, Jesus continued on a preaching tour. It says in, in Mark 6.6, 6, And he went about among the villages teaching. And at some point along the way, he called his inner circle close, and he began pushing them out of the nest. Up until this point, they had hung really close with Jesus. They were with him all the time. Even when the storm got out of hand on the sea, he was there. He may have been asleep, but he was still there. Now it was time for them to step out and stretch their wings Remember, that's the reason that he called the 12 in the first place, Mark 3, 14. So they might be sent out from the crowd. And true to his word, here he is, he's sending them out, and he's giving them that authority that he promised and the instructions that they needed. Verse 7 says this, And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them not to take, to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two 
tunics. Now, it's good to be prepared when you're going to set out for a long journey, right? It's very good to be prepared. Some people make it their mission to be prepared for everything. You've seen these people, right? You've seen them driving around. They're driving in these vehicles with these oversized tires, and they got everything on these vehicles. They've got extra fuel containers. They've got those indestructible uh, ice chests. They've got shovels. They've got axes. They've got toe straps. They've got first aid kits. They've got camping stoves. They've got rooftop tents. They've got pet homes. They've got everything. And that's great for them. I don't know what kind of gas mileage they're getting, but that's great. You would think that Jesus, sending his 12 out two by two, you would think that he would have said, okay, now stop by REI on your way out, talk to the guy behind the counter, say you know me, he's going to hook you up. He's going to set it all up, and you'll be on your way. But no, we don't see any of that. In fact, we see the opposite, don't we? He tells them not to take anything extra. Just take a staff. Take your sandals with you. It's been said that any worker is as good as his or her tools. I take that very seriously, and so I try to buy the best tools I can all the time because I know I'm not a very good worker, and my tools make up for my skill set. But Jesus' goal here wasn't to teach his workers to depend on their tools. He wasn't trying to get them to depend on their well-stocked supplies. No, he was teaching them to trust him. Teaching them to live and walk and go out by faith. And that's counterintuitive for many of us. And I wonder, could it be the reason that we sometimes fail to go out and do what Christ has called us to do. Maybe share the hope that we have because we're depending too much on our training or the lack thereof. Too much on our abilities to speak or our personalities rather than on the power of the one who is actually sending us out. I'm encouraged to see that Jesus didn't send these guys out alone. They went in twos. They needed each other. They were going to be able to help one another. They were going to be able to learn from one another as they interacted with other people. And having given them authority over these unclean spirits, well, they were going to be able to verify what happened. The word of two is certainly better than the word of one. And there were going to be some strange things that are going to be happening out there on the road that needed to be verified. As they would have anticipated, there were going to be some people that were not going to be happy to see them. Some people were not going to welcome them. So Jesus told them what they should do when they encounter those kinds of people in those kinds of places. They were to treat them like Gentiles. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave. Verse 12 says, so they went out. They went out. They did it. They were doing it. They were out there on the road, stepping into the unknown and representing Jesus everywhere they went. What a, what a thrilling and yet terrifying experience that must have been. I mean, fishing was one thing that, that many of these guys were very familiar with, but fishing for people, that's something different. Obediently, faithfully, courageously, they go out, and they were successful 
It says they proclaimed that people should repent. That proclamation in itself was an evidence of success. We don't read, we don't know if anyone was actually repenting from the words that they were, they were saying, but that wasn't the point. Success for witnesses is in the witnessing. Success for preachers is in the preaching. Success for you and I is in the obeying, not in what we think should be accomplished. They were successful in another way. They cast out many demons, it says, and anointed with many oil many who were sick and healed them. Now someone might ask, well, if Jesus gave them this kind of authority, why doesn't he seem to do the same for us? Why, why aren't we going around and just healing people everywhere we go, putting hospitals out of business? Lord knows many people could use it these days. The miracles that Jesus gave these apostles, the authority to perform, were there for a reason. There for a reason. They were there to authenticate the message that these apostles were proclaiming. Unlike any other of Jesus' disciples, these guys had the exclusive role that was limited only to them. Through the twelve, Christ would continue to reveal his truth and everything that was necessary for his church to grow and flourish. Their teaching, we read in Ephesians, it would become the foundation upon which the church was built. And just like the miracles of Jesus authenticated his ministry, so the miracles that they performed, they would give an authenticity. They would authenticate their teaching as well. Now, there are a lot of people out there that say, I've, I have come after these apostles and I have apostolic authority as well. But the reality is there have been and there only ever will be 12 apostles. And we know that because of Revelation 21.14. John's describing what was revealed to him about the holy city. And he writes this, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, 12. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So while the age of disciple-making, it goes on and on. It continues. It seems clear that the age of the apostles and their miraculous authenticating signs has, in a way, passed. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't still heal people. doesn't mean that God doesn't cast out demons. I've seen some of these incredible things happen, too. When I was over in Kenya with Don Rogers, we saw incredible things happen. That doesn't mean that these things never happen. doesn't mean that God doesn't sometimes give people supernatural abilities to accomplish amazing things. But it means that these permanent abilities, these permanent gifts were just given to these apostles. That's just a little side note. Imagine how these guys must have felt when they commanded spirits to come out of a person and they obeyed what a rush it worked we did it 
Jesus wasn't just filling our minds with mumbo jumbo here. He actually, what he said actually took place. He told us we would have authority and we actually had authority. Can you believe it? There's something really exciting about having the opportunity and the privilege to represent the king, right? Wherever we go in this world, we represent the king. And yet at the same time, as we mentioned earlier, there's something very sobering about that. Especially when it comes to the risks of being Christ's ambassador. And I think that is why Mark talks about what he talks about next, right after this. Right after the success of the apostles' mission, he talks about something rather disturbing. He talks about the death of the very last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. The government didn't look favorably on this heavenly kingdom that was breaking into the world. John the Baptist, the one who Jesus said was the greatest human being who has ever been born, the one who had been preparing the way for Jesus, who had been calling people, turn from your sin, recognize your guilt, and, and, and repent, the one who had been baptizing in the Jordan River, the one whose entire life was devoted to pointing people to Jesus, that John had been calling out the sin, the immorality of a certain leader. Mark calls him King Herod. Herod wasn't actually a king. He was a tetrarch. He was a regional monarch. His father, Herod the Great, was was the one, you remember, he's the one who had all the male babies killed when Jesus was born in an attempt to actually kill Jesus. His father, Herod the Great, once ruled over all of Israel. But when he died, the land was divided up. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, was set over the territory where Jesus was now ministering, the territory of Galilee there, where Galilee was located. Like his father before him, Herod Antipas was not a good guy. He may not have been as powerful, but he was certainly as brutal and certainly as immoral. Verse 17 tells us that John was calling him out. Calling him out for what? Calling him out for marrying his brother's wife. What was the problem with that? Well, he stole his, his brother's wife and, and she came and married him. On top of that, Herod was already married to the daughter of another king. Not only that, this wife that he steals from his brother Philip and marries, that was his niece. Getting a little confusing here? <laughs> this, was, this was a mess. This was like soap opera material. This is like reality show material. It's not good. Herodias, the wife, resented what John was saying. How dare you say that my marriage to Herod Antipas is immoral. How dare you? And she wanted him killed. But Herod seemed to be rather superstitious. He didn't really want to touch a holy man. I don't know what could happen there. It seems like there's some powers there. I don't want to mess with it. And Herod found his teaching rather intriguing. He liked to hear what he said. It was, it was kind of amusing. He's not getting HBO, so you know the next best thing is John the Baptist. Who's this guy wearing camel skins and eating locusts? This is fascinating. He has him thrown in prison instead of killed. No doubt John's imprisonment reached 
the, the news of it reached Jesus' disciples. And it must have put them on some type of high alert. Wouldn't you think so? Following Jesus can be dangerous. It can be costly. How costly? Let's look at verse 21 here. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. That's pretty impressive. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. <laughs> this is gruesome. There's so many things that are wrong with this, from the, de the, de the demented vendetta of, of Herod's wife to the shameful, sensual dance that was aimed at seducing her stepfather and all of his friends, to the foolish pride of, of Herod himself that, that prevented him from, from sticking with what his gut was telling him. Instead, he, he, he stuck to his promise, and John died. Clearly, we see how corrupt how foolish, how wicked the powers were that put an end to the last of the Old Testament prophets. And that put, must have put in the minds of these apostles the sobering question, if the forerunner to Jesus was not untouchable, then perhaps his followers are not either. When Herod heard of all these things, that Jesus and his band of, of 12, they were out there and they were preaching and they were doing incredible things all over the territory. His fearful, superstitious mind was convinced that John had come back from the dead. Very superstitious, right? Perhaps he had risen to seek his revenge. Maybe he's coming after me. Perhaps Jesus and his followers were a threat. How disconcerting that must have been for Jesus' inner circle, that there's some powerful madman out there whose irrational brain might persuade him to hunt us down and have us killed. The work was hazardous. Christians, don't be surprised when your allegiance and service to Jesus proves to be the same. Serving the king is no guarantee of safety. Not on this earth. In fact, it's actually kind of the opposite. Exhausted, after completing their first away mission, they must have been relieved when Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Wow, okay, we're getting away from the crowds. 
We're getting away from this chaos. It'll be a little bit safer. We're not causing any stirs in town. And maybe Herod will even calm down. This is going to be good. We read in Mark 6.31, they had been... They had been busy with people coming and going constantly. They hadn't even had time to eat. These guys were starving, probably heads pounding. We just need a break, Jesus. But as they were nearing the shore, their hearts must have just sank as they saw people were running. The crowds were, were there starting to gather already, beginning to form. Jesus, please, no, no, send them away. This is our time. We're hungry. We got, we're tired. We got nothing left to give. Look, we got nothing here. Jesus, we want to follow you, but be reasonable. Fill in the blank. I'll follow Jesus as long as. For so long in America, following Jesus, like we said, it's been relatively easy. You can keep your job. You can have a nice house. You can go to church on, on Sunday, and you can have the rest of your time to do what you want to do. Bring glory to God and his people? Sure, I'll do that as long as I get my me time. But what happens when the needs of those that Christ brings into your life, they just don't stop. They just keep getting bigger and bigger and more demanding each day. Parents understand that kind of demand, right? Those needs that keep piling up, being totally exhausted. It never seems to end. At first, you hear the news that a little bundle of joy is coming. You're just like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Look, we're going to have a little baby. We get to decorate the room. We get to push a stroller. And everyone's going to go, oh, coochie, coochie, coochie. They're so sweet. But then something happens at about two years of age. The parents start saying, will this never end? It's never ending. I'm changing diapers. I'm bandaging owies. I'm cleaning spills. I'm building puzzles. I'm scrubbing stains. I'm answering questions. So many questions. I'm dealing with outbursts. I'm brushing teeth. I'm reading stories. I'm searching for dollies. I'm tucking kids in for bed. I'm going to get that glass of water. I'm saying, good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. And then I'm up at 3 a.m. changing a wet bed, serenaded to the cries of someone that I'm going to have in my house for the next 14, 15, 16, 23, 42. <laughs> Parents know what it's like. It's exhausting. As night began to fall, the disciples were finally emboldened to say, enough is enough. We're done here. It grew late, verse 35. His disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. They're very tactful. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There are limits, Jesus, for crying out loud. But you see, as far as Jesus was concerned, there were no limits. No limits he had come to lose his life. Literally. He had come to serve. He had come to be spent. The time for rest would come later. The time for relaxation would come later. 
the time for glory would come later. We read in verse 34, backing up just a bit, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Shepherds don't work nine to five hours, do they? Their life isn't dictated by punching the clock. It's determined by the needs of the sheep. A good shepherd would do anything. He'd do everything to care for those sheep. Jesus said a good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But what about when the needs are just too big? I mean, sometimes they're just too big, aren't they? What about when the work is just too much and there's no way that you're going to be able to give what needs to be given? I mean, the crowds, they needed to eat here. Not just five, not just 50, not just 500, 5,000 men. And if there were 5,000 men, well, there were probably 5,000 women. There maybe have been more women. What about children? How many are we talking here? Are we talking 10,000? Are we talking 15,000? Are we talking 20,000 people? When Jesus said, you give them something to eat, they replied, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Who's got $50,000 to give them some bread? a snack to hold them over. The need is just too great. It can't be done. We've given all that we got. Enough is enough. And that's when Jesus asked them, well, what do you have? What do you have? And he does the unbelievable. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and we're satisfied. We say we're here for the glory of God and the good of his people. But living for the good of his people is bigger than any of us. So much bigger. But we don't have to worry about that. That's God's business. He's got it. Remember, he's the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think from our study in Ephesians a couple years ago. That's what these weary, worn-out disciples saw right then and there. In a moment, they all at once felt humbly inadequate and totally in awe. But what were they in awe of? Were they in awe of Jesus, or were they in awe of these 12 basketfuls we've got left over? This was just amazing. Where did it all come from? I don't know. Mark tells us in verse 52, they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
Sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in the excitement of overcoming some huge monumental challenge that we fail to be in awe of the one who made it happen. Through the next uncomfortable situation, Jesus would solve that. He'd make it clear that it was he and not the miracles that they should be in awe of. And herein lies the secret for us. If you've latched on to anything this morning, drop it and latch on to this. This is the most important thing. It is the realization that the one we are traveling with is none other than the glorious maker himself. This is the secret to surviving the discomfort of the journey. It's the realization of the one we're traveling with and that he is none other than the glorious maker himself. The mission is challenging, the journey uncomfortable, the work hazardous, but the one who called us to serve, the one who's traveling with us, the one who is, we're working for is none other than the supreme, everlasting, all-powerful, living Lord, and that makes all the difference. That night, Jesus separated off from them. He needed to pray. The apostles, they were rowing back across to the other side of the lake. It was only a few miles, no big deal, but the wind was not in their favor. An hour upon grueling hour, they battled out there on the water. Sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? Mm. Sometimes it's a grind. Sometimes it feels like the pain of following Jesus is relentless. It's put wedges in our relationships, maybe even in our own families. It's threatened our livelihoods. It's made us outcasts. It's meant long, excruciating, thankless hours of hard work. We need to remember we're not forgotten. As the disciples struggled out there into the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, they'd been struggling for hours out there. It says, Jesus saw them. He saw them. Even though it was miles away, he was miles away, up on top of a mountain, verse 48 says, he saw them making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. How did he see them? Same way he sees you and me. He's the one who sees, sees everything. Remember Psalm 139? You're rising and you're sitting and you're coming and you're going. Even before a word is on your tongue, he knows it. You are not forgotten. Verse 48, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. They mistook him for something else, something sinister, something harmful. I think sometimes we do that when God is actually working in our lives, doing big things. We're frightened. It looks harmful to us when in reality, God is going to bring about something spectacular through it. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
why, Lord? Why shouldn't we be afraid here? Can't you see how terrifying this is? Can't you see how life-changing it may be? How am I going to continue to provide for my family? How am I going to be able to stand the agony of this diagnosis? How am I going to continue to walk and keep trusting you when such monumental things, monumental unknowns lie in front of me? Jesus says, because it is I. This is really important. Do you know how those words can literally be translated? Some of you can guess. I am. The same words that God used to identify himself to Moses so many years before. Don't fear. I am. Jesus wanted the message to be heard loud and clear that you don't say no to fear because sometimes miracles happen. You don't keep rowing because it's comfortable. You don't risk public ridicule or life and limb because you want to experience the good life now. No. You're on this journey because of who it is that called you, that equipped you, that has not forgotten or abandoned you, and who's waiting for you at the finish line. Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker, nor was he some sort of charlatan. He wasn't just another as-seen-on-TV product or magic remedy to take away your wrinkles or take away the pain or enhance your good life. No, he is the creator himself. He's the author and finisher of this journey that you and I find ourselves on if you placed your trust in Jesus. And my prayer is that even as we are on this uncomfortable journey together, like the disciples in verse 51, we would be utterly astounded by who he is. That makes all the difference. It transforms an uncomfortable journey into a sacred calling for the glory of God and the good of his people. There's a pastor out on the East Coast in Manhattan, Timothy Keller, he wrote this recently. If you are in a city or a community that is broken, where people are burned out or spiritually lost, stay as long as you can. There are a lot of people out there who tend to jump ship when the going gets hard, when the politics get too crazy. The taxes just skyrocket. The neighborhood goes down the tubes. The needs grow too big. The journey just gets too uncomfortable, and they long for a better place. They're aching for rest. They, 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 they want retirement now. They feel like if they don't make a change soon, they're just going to crack, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
As we look to Jesus, that author and finisher of our faith, we've got our sights set on that heavenly home that he's preparing for us. But let's not confuse the place we are now with that eternal home, that eternal rest, that heavenly reward that we're looking forward to. Let's not confuse the two. As long as we walk this planet, we have a mission. We're on a journey We've got work to do. Let's not retire before we're ready. The place you and I are in is hard. Being a Christian in California, in North Orange County, California, is becoming more and more difficult. Could it be that is exactly why your maker has put you here? As I was looking for a a church and looking for a a pastor position a few years ago, there were all kinds of things all over the country. And I kept coming back to the realization, why did God put me here? Could he have put me here in Southern California for a reason? There are wonderful things about Southern California. It's beautiful here. Climate's not too bad. But there are also really annoying things and very frustrating things. I was told, you're never going to get a job here. Never. I think God puts us where he has us, right here, right now, for a reason. In fact, I don't just think it. I know that. I know that. Could it be he has you exactly where he wants you to shine light the bright light of Christ in a dark place. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored there to shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The needs are are outrageous. There are so many needs. Too many. The community is broken. The people are burned out and spiritually lost. The mission is challenging. The journey uncomfortable. The work is hazardous. But the one who called you is worth it. Bethany is here in North Orange County, California, for a reason. Let's journey on for the glory of God and the good of his people. Let's share the hope, teach the truth, and serve the king. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for Mark chapter 6 that makes, us, makes it so abundantly clear, Lord, that while there may be success, may, while we may experience some wonderful things and see you work in our lives, see you work through our lives, Lord, this is an uncomfortable place to be, and this is hard work. And sometimes we are just toiling. It feels like an eternity, Lord. And people all around who have needs. But Lord, we just, we're just trying to keep our heads above water here. 
Help us to look to you. May we not be in awe of merely the things, the miraculous things that we've seen happen, Lord. May we continue to be in awe of you because that is exactly what we need for right now. In the shadows, in the pain, in the persecution, in the agony, we need you. We need to know that you have not forgotten us, Lord. We need to know that you've got all of this covered. And we need to know that wherever we are going, the end is with you. We thank you, Lord. May you equip and build up, strengthen your people for the work that you have for them this afternoon and tomorrow and this month, 2021 and beyond. We look to you, Lord Jesus, on this uncomfortable journey that you have us on. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.